Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Two Friends Watch, the first recording of 2022, and we have a special episode for you today. I, as always, am your host, Andrew, and with me, as always, is my good friend, Daniel. How are you doing, Daniel, over in Belgium? I'm doing very well, thank you, Andrew. It's first recording, but it won't be the first episode because there's a backlog and I'm lazy. No, no, we've completely <laughs> scrambled the uh, the release order. Uh, just the, the, the Christmas recording for Lord of the Rings throws us completely out of whack. But yep. I think it ends up with that we end up doing two um, off-the-wall animated fantasy movies in a row. But such is life. But uh, just to um, speak about our topic today, we have the special pleasure of welcoming on board a guest uh, from... Uh, our neighboring podcast, The Wattcast, Mr. Caleb Wimble uh, over in uh, Los Angeles. How are you, Caleb? Hi, hello. I'm I'm good, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, very good to have you. We uh, just wanted to bring you on a little bit, Caleb, to um, bring in a bit of your expertise in high fantasy. You are running The uh, the Wattcast, uh, the uh, podcast dedicated to Robert Jordan's series, The Wheel of Time, just in concert with the release of the show on Amazon at the moment. So we wanted to get you on for your um, your high fantasy bona fides, as it were. Uh, expertise is definitely a very generous way of putting it, but uh, but I definitely did love high fantasy growing up. That and, that and science fiction were definitely my genres of choice. Obviously, I grew up reading the Wheel of Time series. It's interesting to be reading them again as an adult, but yeah, I do, I do. I do love talking about this stuff, even um, even if my relationship has changed with it pretty significantly, I think. Which I imagine is true for everyone and, and their childhood favorites. Yeah, that's very true. But before before we dive into tonight's film, as you are kind of the the available expert, the expert right <laughs> now on this, I am on the fence for the Wheel of Time series right now. I've seen the trailer. I I will admit I know nothing of the mm. source material. I watched the trailer and I was kind of like, hmm. Do I? Do I not? Do, do I go book, then show? Do I just go straight show? Do I need some prerequisite reading before I go show? Or will the show fill it all in nicely? Where, where do you think I should lie on that one? Oh, boy, that, that's a very good question that we have also asked on the podcast. So the structure of Wattcast, uh, a Wheel of Time book and watch club, we call it, is that I, I'm the only one who's read the books before. All the other hosts are coming in, first-time readers as adults, and then watching the show through. And I think the conclusion we all came to by the end of the first season was that it's a very complimentary experience reading Mm -hmm. the novel and watching the first season of the show. Uh, And we struggle wondering with certain elements of the show how people who haven't read the books are what they're supposed to make uh, of, of certain elements of it so maybe the one the one deficiency of our show is that we don't have someone who is only watching the amazon tv series and not reading the the first book simultaneously uh, the, the the first book is very much I, I realized more than ever this time it's it's a fellowship of the rings fan mm-hmm. fiction to some extent a very a very competent one an interesting one and one that does some neat things with it but the series doesn't really become very much uniquely its own thing i think until the second and third and especially the fourth, the show is bringing in much more, I think, of the things that make the setting unique. So it's got that going for it. Um, it's a bit of a mixed bag in production design. I, I would generally say if you're, if you're interested in high fantasy, uh, it's probably worth checking out. There are, there are some really good episodes in there, I think. Um, and there are some interesting decisions made. Uh, and, then, and then, you know, there, there are things that I think it's important not to go in expecting what Amazon is marketing it as, which mm. is... Um, 
I, they, they've said so extensively, this is, you know, this is going to be our game of Thrones. Every network wants their game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not that kind of show. It's not, it's not an intensely political thriller drawing on, on, um, on, you know, 30 years war and, and uh, war of the roses history and mixing and matching um, all, all that stuff in there. It's, it's a very different flavor of things, but um, yeah, I, if, if you are the kind of person who just enjoys um, you know, uh, like existential threats and mag magical societies of meddling wizards and things like that. It it's a fun time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's very interesting, actually, because I, I would give a lot of the similar com comments and compliments and, and um, statements actually towards the Witcher series mm -hmm. I found yeah. on Netflix. Yeah. There's, there's a yes. lot of things yeah. I would say that's a, an interesting parallel there where it's it's complementing the source material, but it's also doing its own thing. Mm -hmm. um, some things you could argue it does better and some things I would argue it does worse. Um, so that's, that's very curious. And, and actually that ties nicely into tonight's uh, episode, which is kind of, as you said, it, it's a supplement. This is mm -hmm. The Witcher, exactly. the Nightmare of the Wolf. It's a supplemental film. And immediately off the bat, my first complaint hmm. would be that if you go into this completely fresh with no background of any witcher material at all i don't think you're going to enjoy this really that much because there are hmm. so many references and things that are clearly tied into either the tv show the books or the games that aren't very well described in this standalone-esque film yeah huh. Completely. And this is sort of one thing I wanted to, to bring on board, just because obviously the, the Witcher season two has just kicked off uh, now on Netflix. And um, we wanted to just speak a little bit about this sort of tie in movie that uh, was used to link the first and second seasons together, mm -hmm. because as we mentioned, obviously, after Game of Thrones ended, there came to be this sort of power vacuum almost in the TV landscape and both mm -hmm. uh, Wheel of Time and Witcher are sort of looking to fill it. Um, and I'm kind of interested to get you guys' perspectives on this because I, relative to, I think you two, am a bit of a Witcher neophyte. I watched the first season of the show, but I never touched the books and I've never touched the games. Mm. And Daniel, I understand that you have played Witcher 3 at least fairly extensively. Yes, I've read um, The Last Witch, uh, Wish, sorry, uh, which is a sort of a series of, of, of um, connected, loosely connected stories. Um, mm -hmm. Interestingly, a lot of those stories went into the first season. Mm -hmm. I also played The um, uh, Witcher 3 extensively. Um, so, yeah, I do have a bit of a, a background in that. What about you, uh, Caleb? What's, what's your background on The Witcher franchise? Fairly similar. I think uh, probably like most uh, Americans anyway, I, I came to The Witcher through the video games. It was uh, The Witcher 2 was the first one I played uh, on oh, yeah. Xbox 360 at the time, which is just like the spur of the moment uh, purchase decision, uh, which is an interesting place to come in. Then I later played 3 and then went back to 1, which is the only one that hasn't finished. And I've also read The Last Wish and, the, and then the second book that is a collection of the stories uh sort, sort of destiny um mm, it, it's and, on my list <laughs> yeah it's it's also a lot of the ones from uh from the show episodes and i was actually surprised to find apparently sort of destiny even though it is 
second released chronologically in in English and marketed that way, a lot of the stories were written before the ones in The Last Wish, and and also I heard that. Yeah, so it has like mixed prequel elements, and the characters are in different places at different times. But but I think that works really well for the kind of the picaresque sort of uh, impression I have of The Witcher from those stories, from those first two collections, and from the video games, which lend themselves very well to that. You know, you're on you're on quests in the RPG sense. You're, you're doing yeah. these individual your interactive short stories that feel, especially Witcher 2 and Witcher 3, the games, to me, they feel like very, very strong adaptations of the source material in that sense. They're they're, they're those episodic adventures uh, that all connect to one another in a larger way, but they're not telling until until Witcher 3's like... um, the Siri, the Siri plotline, the Child of Destiny thing. That, that's yeah. really the only point where it becomes a giant story in the epic fantasy sense, it feels like to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and um, unfortunately, I mean, I, I don't know. Sorry, Andrew, I realize we're <laughs> excluding you a little bit on this one. But just very quickly, I wanted to catch um, Caleb's thoughts on the, the first season of The Witcher. Mm-hmm. Do you think the narrative structure that they use, this weird different time location system that kind of eventually all connected at the series finale, do you think that was sort of a a hindrance or a a support towards the series for perhaps somebody who's new? It lost me, I have to admit. But um, I I take what you what you mean about the picaresque sort of um, feeling of the Witcher franchise in general, Caleb, it, it feels like a, a universe, a constellation of stories with um, mm-hmm. sort of loosely interlocking uh, threads that we follow various characters and various um, political factions through without it ever feeling too tightly wound or too bound up in a forward uh, moving narrative, which I think it means that the series lends itself quite well to adaptation and expansion and just a a little bit of play in how it's presented to the audience, which is why I think um, Nightmare of the Wolf is an interesting sort of Hmm. discursion. Um, It it ties into this sort of general um, trend that I've noticed in the last few years as well, where we've been seeing a lot of um, Western properties being adapted uh, with these sort of supplementary anime shows or movies. And Mm. just, I I think that's just a curious trend. We've seen it with Pacific Rim. We saw it with Altered Carbon. I think Blade Runner has uh, a show going on just at the moment taking place in its universe, always loosely related to the events of the show, but just sort of playing Mm -hmm. around with these very stylized, you know, far-flung fictional settings uh, with a more stylized, visual aesthetic than you have available to you in live action. And I have to say just up front, this movie, it really worked for me. I think that those sort of adaptations have been pretty hit and miss generally, but I was surprised by how taken I was with this one uh, in, in particular. I don't know. How, how do you guys feel just sort of top level thoughts? Interestingly, I, I liked it a lot better on rewatch. I watched it for a second time oh, huh. for, uh, for, for this conversation th- this past week. Uh, and I found I was able to do what I couldn't the first time, which was um, not think of it as a Witcher adaptation, uh, because because I, I spent my, I, I think I spent largely my infer- my first watch thinking about the ways in which it did not, the ways in which it felt off to me in tone huh. and language and the style of the action 
in the magic, in the way the world was presented, how, how, mm-hmm. how unrecognizable Vesemir seemed to me, even accounting for, you know, his character arc and, and his youth and, ev- and, and everything. There, there, was, there were a lot of details I struggled with. And overall with the fact that I had just watched the first time Castlevania's final season. And, it, <laughs> and, and it, it is very much the elephant in the room. Uh, I think that it cannot, cannot be overstated how directly, even though it is a different animated studio, how directly this show pools scenes and sequences. It is such a Castlevania, Castlevania. movie. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, interestingly, it's, uh, it, they, which... <laughs> it's got a very similar, uh, I think it actually has a lot of the voice actors from yeah. Castlevania. Um, Theo James, who plays Vesemir, he played uh, Hector in the Castlevania show that came out a while back. Oh. And all, yeah. yeah, which immediately jumped out to me the moment yeah. he opened his mouth. I thought, where have I heard this guy before? Yeah, I, I guess he doesn't really get work in live action that much anymore after the Divergent movies tanked. But, uh, um, and also you've got Graham McTavish um, as Deglin, mm-hmm. I think is the character's name, who was Dracula from Castlevania. So, mm. yeah, there's a lot of even the show's DNA is in there as well. And I McTavish did- is also in the live action show, right? As... Um- as Dijkstra, he's a different character, but he's the the assassin. Um, I, I believe so. Yes, master. I, yeah, I had right. read that as well. There's also a few of the actual live action characters also come in, which I don't know if that was done deliberately or coincidentally. Hmm. I couldn't give him credit if, if maybe it was due there. Yeah, I don't get the impression that this show is particularly closely linked to the production pipeline on the shows. Hmm. It feels like something that was shopped out to an exterior studio. Um, most of the credits, um, I believe the director is Korean. Um, it's, mm-hmm. this is one of those shows that's animesque. It's, it's not actually, it wasn't farmed out to one of the famous Japanese studios as per like mm-hmm. the Animatrix, but mm-hmm. it's definitely, um, in that same sort of style of outsourcing. And I think yes. that's where a lot of the discrepancies with the larger source material you say about Caleb, um, probably come from. Which didn't jump out to me as much, I have to admit, because I do agree with you, Caleb. There was, there was a a style and a, a, almost an attitude towards Vesemir that felt mm. distinctly disjointed towards both the Vesemir from the games and the the, El, the older Vesemir we see in the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the older Vesemir, he's he's quite cautious. He's quite careful about these things he sort of he lives in care he he's a bit more withdrawn and and you could argue okay maybe that came with age fine there there will be an element to that but the vesemir we see here is more of this i would i would i'd go as far as to say a swashbuckling he's this outrageous Mm -hmm. go out there do the most you know, daring, aggressive, money-grabbing thing. He's flashy, he's big. And while it made for a really interesting character disconnected from Vesemir, in the context of the Witcher universe, it, it was very hard to place it. It's it's also uh, the language thing, I think, on... And, and I do want to be clear, I, I did enjoy it uh, this time around. I was able to get over my own problems, mm. the, the, mm. The, the, the Witcher... Not quite fan fan problem, but the he, we we open with him, uh, like you said, swashbuckling attitude and this very quippy. He has like, these lines like "you trendsetter, you" to the to the Leshen, uh, or they, which they call they they. It says in the subtitles "Leshy," but they're saying aloud "Leshen," which is an interesting video game 
thing, I think, like a little Easter egg thing for the translation things the series oh. has done. Where mm. He's like, you trendsetter, Hugh, and oh, you know, joking about a little foreplay and oh, do I want the forest hobo or the deadly flapping swarm? It felt very <laughs> Whedon-esque bent to me. You have this uh, o- over, over the top, grotesque blood bag violence. You know, this child's family was just exploded in front of him uh, to open up the thing. And then in comes Vesemir cracking one-liners at the, at yeah. this true creature of, of like, of eldritch horror uh, in, in the moment here. It was it was Trevor Belmont. The, the, yes, all those yes. one-liners are 100%. exactly Trevor yes. Belmont from Castlevania. You know, the, the whippy comebacks, the almost talking to himself because the mm-hmm. fight bores him because he's so brilliant. It's, yes. It was just Trevor Belmont. And while I love Castlevania, that franchise just, just I, I cannot give it off praise. It isn't really what I was looking for in a Witcher series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so exactly. it's yeah. kind of weird. I get I that. loved it, but in all the wrong ways. <laughs> yeah, the, the um, I do take your point from that that sort of tonal whiplash in the opening scene, but where I do think that opening massacre of the young boy's family feels kind of unearned in hindsight, uh, mm-hmm. considering the sort of direction the the movie goes, um, because. It's, it's sort of playing into that general sort of sense of life is cheap, uh, almost grimdark side to the setting. Yes, it, we open with the child pissing on an elf statue. That is one of the opening shots, which I think is uh, important for, I think, what what it is establishing as a tone that put me off a bit the first time. And now now that I'm fully prepared to say, oh, yeah, the rest of the movie I, I got much more on, on board with. Uh, I, I would but... <laughs> say that I wonder how much they are trying to cater to people with zero background in the witch universe. You know, very quickly they have to establish humans hate elves. So there's the yes, very first yeah, scene. Yeah. They have mm-hmm. to show that monsters are vastly more powerful to your average person. So mm-hmm. the family have to be butchered. It has to set yes, the tone yeah. of dark and gory. You have to set the witches as these these exceptionally top-tier humans that fight for money. Like, I, I, I completely agree. I don't really like it. I didn't like a lot of those first opening scenes, but I do wonder if it was like they, they have to just put this yeah, whole yeah. tonality all onto the table as quick as they can so they can get into the story in the... It wasn't a long runtime, not even an hour and a half. They, they can't afford to put 30 minutes into backstory. Mm-hmm. They sh- they should, but they can't. So they they got to do ten minutes into the backstory. Hmm. Well, they in a way they kind of do with the intercut prequel, right? Like we have we have we do have child Vesemir um, pretty quickly, and then mm. and then throughout the movie, and which I think were maybe actually some of my favorite scenes, uh, or or uh, or at least a moment, especially on this rewatch. I was like, oh, this this is this is doing something really effective here. Uh, was um, I think it's maybe about only 10 minutes in when we get to his first exorcism. I don't know if we call it that. The, 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 the spider, the spider demon oh, exorcism so, oh, sequence, yeah. and which, which I feel like that scene is doing so much for setting the tone, the social order, the sort of society that we're setting mm-hmm. in, uh, what, what role a witcher plays in society to the extent I feel like you could have opened with, um, with uh, with that that whole sequence with the child, uh, child though I fully understand why they open with like a very flashy, larger than life ac- action sequence too. That, that's like a, a that's a very grip, gripping way to start a movie. Yeah. And um, I, I think I take both your points. With I I think just for an eighty minute film, 
if I have one significant criticism of it, it's that it is trying to keep a lot of plates spinning all at once. It wants yeah. to be a prequel to the to the series. It wants to be an adaptation of the series to an anime, uh, more flashy, more heightened sort of stylization. And it mm-hmm. wants to be a, a complete story of Vesemir's life from childhood through to his current, current yeah. adventures. That's a lot of ground to cover in the time that they've allocated themselves. And I think the, because it's, it's a straightforward enough story to follow. Mm-hmm. The beats of the story, the actual causal logic of the plot is all there. But I do think some of the scenes can feel quite flighty and quite weightless just for how much it's intercut with, with the backstory and how much it relies on montage. Mm-hmm. I think that's, um, if I was going to level one significant criticism at it, it would be that. It's that it can feel a bit um, insubstantial just from the how thinly it's spreading itself. I have a question for both of you then on that. If done well, do you think this uh, film could have benefited from another 30 minutes? I would say so. Although animation is expensive and yep. <laughs> that's the sort of thing where it's like, yeah, it would be nice to have an extra million dollars in my pocket, but um, you, you know, you have to sort of play the hand you're dealt with a project like this, I suppose. I mean, for an, for an animation, is, is 83 minutes short, average, or long in terms of a runtime? It's very rare to get an animated movie longer than two hours. Hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think uh, the final Evangelion movie came out this year. It was something like two and a half hours long. I am pretty sure that's a record. Oh, and the, and the lead time of production on those was was staggering, insane. Too. Yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing. Yeah, so this, yeah. this felt very very richly animated. I think uh, it was. Um, I don't know if we mentioned that uh, you mentioned Korean director uh, Kwang El Han, mm-hmm. I believe, but but I hadn't realized until the second rewatch that it's Studio Mir who the lead animating studio in Korea, who also animated the legend of Korra. And the moment I read that, oh, I'm like, Oh, there that is so... tracks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I and, love that. and also plays into this history of, Oh, you know what? I mean, Castlevania is probably more indebted to vampire hunter D than anything. And berserk and like a long, a long history of anime and, and manga in this genre. But there's a lot of Castlevania that I, that I think like that you can see some of the stylization and, and the sort of like fusion of some, uh, like American animation sensibilities and traditional traditional anime. And again, we got a Korean studio who's neither of those things. That there are flourishes and character motions and little uh little um presentations, especially maybe maybe in um the thing that clicked for me with this one to where I looked it up was the way that the sorceress Ilyana firebends and the way that she moves as a bender in the casting of her magic stylistically for sure and, yeah mm, that's um, interesting actually. she does the dancing motion she does like the the sweeping hands i was actually going to point out that exact scene the uh the moment where she causes the avalanche that buries the uh the hidden temple yes. uh-huh. like that's such a beautifully animated sort of dance it's, it's one of those moments i think um we brought it up when we talked about um Kiki's delivery service, Daniel, but just the way that it's animated so you can appreciate the distribution of weight and the yes. way that um, yeah. all of her poses just, it has that sort of limited animation quality where she's snapping to these quite dynamic, mm-hmm. dramatic poses in a way that feels illustrated, but also the movement feels like it carries with it a certain sense of heft and mass. And yeah, it, it's just really beautifully done. I think for something that... Yeah. It wasn't a particularly high profile release. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous piece of 2D work. 
I would say actually then um, continuing on from that, it's something I would uh, put it as a, a strong positive towards this, this film and towards things like Castlevania and, and Avatar is that a lot of the, the magic, the moves, the, mm-hmm. the, the abilities felt tangible. It felt impactful. It, mm-hmm. it felt like, you know, none of it was flourish. The hand gestures, the body movement actually felt like it was going towards some sort of mystical ability or some sort mm-hmm. of um, actual output. Um, the, the, the complete and opposite of this, as an example, I would say is actually like the Avatar live action movie mm. where there was vast amounts <laughs> oh, yeah. of physical movement to make ah. a small rock float in the air. And that's a perfect example of where all the flourish and all the movement felt worthless, pointless. It didn't mm. add something to the momentum. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And it, I think there is a sort of emerging, almost sort of transcontinental standard for the way fantasy battle sequences are put together for stuff like this mm. now. Yes. Totally on board. If this, if things like Avatar, Castlevania, and and this film, The Witcher, uh, film is going to be set in standards for future animation styling. I'm vastly on board with where this is going, and I am excited for the next hundred years of animation. Absolutely, assuming we don't all, you know, um, <laughs> extenuating circumstances not applying. But um, what do we actually think of the beats of the plot? Because I'm aware we've not actually spoken much about the narrative itself here, which is. It's relatively complex for the time that we've got to work with, but basically involves a conspiracy. Um, this is a obviously a prequel to um, the, se- the series itself before we get to know Geralt or the rest of his, um, his companions. Um, but essentially it involves a, a conspiracy being launched by the Witchers to manufacture uh, monsters mm. as a threat for them to, to hunt and the blowback that results uh, when this conspiracy is discovered. And I like the detail that it makes the characters feel anti-heroic. It makes the, the sort of shades of gray pop the way that mm. uh, the, the series does as well. It's, uh, this was one of those interesting points where, again, I, I enjoyed it more this time, taking it as a story into in its own right as, as this very dark, effectively revenge tale we learned for for the sins of the witchers that you just talked talked about it and that this this conspiracy yes. that they've been involved in and, and and past sins of other witchers and then all that in the one in in two individuals really Il- Ilyana and um and the elf uh mutant um character whose name whose name escapes me um which I struggled on the first watch because this is so different from the version of what happens at Kermorhen in as presented in the books and in the video games and okay. it changed it it changes it the themes of it completely yeah that was just something no uh because that was something i was interested to ask about i didn't know how much this actually played into established franchise lore so i'd be interested to get that that point of view well it's to be clear it's something that we never see firsthand it's always presented by other characters as far as i know i don't think i haven't read the the latter 
six books. So maybe at some point we see it literally, but, um, but from when other ca characters relate the story, they all seem to be in agreement in, in the books that the, the witchers were at Kermora were killed by a human pogrom, a human led pogrom, essentially a, uh, the sorcerers and sorceresses did, did lead. They basically, you know, played up all the animus and fears of this population uh, to go and, and slaughter in vast numbers, the people that directly uh, protected them from these things. In this, and you know, that, that, that plays into a lot of what the Witcher stories are about in terms of the other, in terms of what a monster is to society, in terms of society creating monsters and then, and then blaming the sure. monsters for their own creation. This, this movie is doing, it's telling a very different kind of story of personal vengeance within which, one, the Witchers are doing everything that they are accused of doing by this hateful society. Ah. The Witchers are responsible in, in this one. They have done these particular things. But then two becomes this um, personal vengeance story that also maybe this bothered me the slightest bit on the first watch sort of hinges on on one bit of duplicity and misunderstanding and one Ilyana convincing one other character that the witchers did a particular crime that they did not do that she actually did, which then results in in the end of the witcher order. However, watching it again, this one, I, I you know, again, I could set aside the this is not the this is a different theme, different kind of story from what the what uh what the books tell and and i think is a really effective vengeance story especially that reveal when maybe maybe predictably but i think effectively find out that that Ilyana is the character in her or or you know or the child of the character in the story she tells of uh of an evil witcher uh earlier mm -hmm. in, in the film oh i'm actually really happy to hear that because one of the things i kind of liked about the whole witcher franchise is that they are misunderstood and they yes. are ostracized uh -huh. because they're doing good but their own personality part of their upbringing part of the mutagens part of their connections to this monstrous side of humanity makes them scary it makes the mm -hmm. general population against them they're this they're this half monster creature yes. that's working for the humans to a degree and just protecting humanity Mm -hmm. sometimes they have a very black and white attitude and I understand why humanity are so adverse against that you know being the humble farmer seeing this sort of monstrous human although they're protecting you they could kill you if they chose yeah, to yeah. and that's a thing to fear so I was really kind of disappointed when it was like oh the witches are kind of as bad as uh -huh. everybody feared they were. <laughs> or the conspiracies members, are true. Yeah, or, oh, or yeah. some members within the Witcher order are, because yes, I, yes. I, I suppose it's worth pointing out that Vesemir, he wasn't in on it, and he's duly horrified when he, when true, he learns true. about it. But, but it was but, so kind of sort of disappointed to me, disappointed, because it's like the conspiracy theorists were right. Yes. That yeah. the Witchers were always meant to be mistrusted. They're not mm -hmm. anti-heroes. They're basically just very subtle villains. And all of that protecting humanity is just a ruse. Forget about it. I felt deeply undermined in what I had already kind of learned to like cautiously love of the franchise. So oh, I'm really kind of glad yeah. <laughs> now you said like, yeah. yeah, no, this is not really canon. I was like, yes, yes. Yeah, that's, that's what I wanted to hear. That's interesting, just because. I mean, coming to it from someone, somebody further from the canon, it, it kind of worked for me just because mm -hmm. um, we, we get the, the sense from everything we hear from Vesemir um, that 
it's because the witchers don't have any other place in society. There's nothing they can do other than kill monsters. So yeah, we kind of yeah. have, you can still sort of see, um, see an element of moral ambiguity in what Deglin and the, uh, the alchemists were, were responsible for. Um, but that, that's an interesting, I hadn't actually considered that angle uh, because I wasn't aware of that sort of aspect of the lore. But uh, what did work for me was the relationship between uh, Vesemir and his uh, childhood friend, uh, who he re-encounters as Lady Zarbst, uh, Mm. um, and she's in old age. That's something that always lands for me, the sort of uh, cross-generational, you know, people aging at different rates and the sort of romance persisting across those those divides. It's one of those very uniquely fantasy conceits that reads as very melancholy i always i, I always yeah. like that when i encounter it and she is she is wonderful both as a character my fit i also my favorite part of the movie and the jennifer hale performance who i did, again didn't realize till this watch oh that's that's shepherd from mass effect oh, I, sure. I, I thought I, I thought she was wonderful uh she she just felt um immediately uh in her first few lines her delivery is actually telling you things that are not clear about the character from the dialogue at that point and that you could probably not immediately glean uh, and, and getting the sense of her motivations and allegiances and a complicated history. I, I thought she was far and away the, the highlight, especially on, on rewatch, really, really enjoyed watching and, and hearing her throughout. I would say my only small complaint was that, and, and maybe, I, maybe I'm reading into it wrong, is that, you know, spoiler alert, um, is her death, felt a little sort of used mm. to further punish Vesemir. Like mm. she, up to that point, she was established as her own independent, very strong, interesting, fiery character who had a connection to Vesemir, but wasn't beholden to him. She was her own main character. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of felt like her death undermined it a little bit. Like, Oh no, she was just the sweetheart of Vesemir that just mm. established he is a tragic character. And yeah, all that other stuff about her being her own independent person with a backstory. No, she was just kind of just a long stretch damsel in distress who now is going to just be a sad footnote in Vesemir's story. I didn't really like that. I would have preferred her to have her own, her own ending, her own mm. sort of, you know, it doesn't have to be phenomenal. It could have just been, and 20 years later, she died of old age, making her own mark in history. Great. Yeah. Loved it. I just didn't like her death. It felt too too underwhelming for her powerful character and too mm. much icing on the cake for Vesemir's already pretty tragic ending. Oh, it's it's so bleak. Virtually everyone dies at, yeah, at the end, except yeah. except Vesemir and 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 Geralt and a few other children, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think I just it does didn't get think it was bit, needed. Um, yeah, uh-huh. it, it gets a little bit more. Um, it gets a little bit more mean spirited than it necessarily needs to in a couple of spots. I think uh, the uh, the illusion trick. It's um it's a shocking moment when it happens um in the in the final battle um. Both times, both times, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But um, Mm. it's but even like it's undermined literally two seconds later when Declan Uh, comes in and gets um, 
is it Ileana? I, I want to say, uh, is it? I Libra think I mixed up Ileana? the names earlier. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Ileana was the childhood sweetheart. I think it's okay, Libra. Yeah. I want to say. I don't know. I was getting a lot of the names wrong, um, so uh, apologies on that front. I, I find fantasy names uh, sometimes quite hard to keep track of, and they don't repeat them much. You know, they're mostly calling each other Witcher or Sorceress or, or <laughs> that's it, exactly. else, though, Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, did you, what did you guys think of the of her ending in general? Do you think it was fine or could have been done better? Uh, I do like the um, the scene on the lakeside at the, mm. the very end. I think that sort of ties quite a lot. It brings it full circle in a way I thought was um, mm. neat enough. But you're right. I think it does make her quite supplementary to Vesemir. So I, I guess I, I hum and ha. I, I kind of wished, actually, I, I hoped it was going this direction, was that, you know, you find out that the witches were kind mm-hmm. of the villains to a degree. Okay, maybe not directly Vesemir, but the witcher group as a society were the villains. I kind of hoped because of her connection to orphans, because she has a good heart, mm-hmm. she would have just been this sort of lost love character. Mm. You know, she would have seen what the society did she could have never have forgiven Vesemir and that was it she would have been the person that would have never have come back to him she left went into the distance and he would have still lost her he would have still had that heartbreak it just didn't require a quick and rather rug pulling Mm -hmm. death on you know that that felt a a touch cheap I I feel like her decision to leave him because of their society would have done Mm -hmm. a better job at cementing his punishment for the society's wrongs. It, it, they're, all, they're all very good points. Uh, and I, I hadn't really been thinking about it uh, so much from that perspective. Um, I, I, do, I do really like the way in, in which you can almost see the reverse as well of the idea of her being a footnote in Vesemir's story in which I feel like we get enough of her in this movie and enough of the scenes that are from her perspective and things that, Vesemir is not there for and of her agenda and of, for me, it felt like a very a, a richly implied sense of the life she has led and the sacrifices she has made, the decisions she has made, the agenda she has in court, the way she maneuvers that Vesemir is almost equally a footnote in her life. And this returning, and this was, this was sort of, I think, a, a dynamic reflective of the way that, um, that Geralt and Yen often interact where they depart for years at a time and come back mm-hmm. into one another's stories and then learning that you know because you're always catastrophically right catastrophically (laughs) but you're always learning all the things that yen has been up to and realizing oh she she is she always feels to me like the hero of her own story and Mm. i i feel like that um and that Geralt is as much for her like a chapter that that enters now Mm. and then and i i largely felt that way with iliana i felt like she you know she had her her childhood escapades with uh with um with Vesemir, then they made different decisions that took them on these wildly divergent paths. And she led this full life. And we're seeing the, the results of that and the choices she's made, which she is largely, I, I don't think she regrets them. I, I don't get the mm-hmm. sense that she regrets uh, what she did in, li- in life and the life she led. And this is sort of like a one last hurrah. This is a, you know, Vesemir's come back to br- bring her into this final chapter adventure. Okay. Uh, and it's and a tragedy. And, you know, it, it, it is tragic, but, but her end to me does not feel as awful and tragic as Vesemir's as, as a result. Like she, she is, um, she, she's, she's led her, led her life 
and, and you know she's and she's regaining and losing something at the at the very end and it's very sad but you know Vesemir loses everything and he and for yeah. him because of his lifespan this is only this is only the mid, midway point and he has to start all over from from the burned ashes there yeah. but I told I totally see what you mean about her being in, instrumentalized in some way to to his a arc. little bit yeah, yeah. I, I do yeah. you actually you make yeah. a very good point I I do feel like Vesemir's situation at the end is just so deeply tragic not just because he lost everybody but because uh-huh. he's now given no no option really like he has to keep or rebuild the witches because you know they they, they have this this honor this code that mm. although he sees a lot of it perhaps was steeped in a, a bit of deceit and corruption there was mm-hmm. a good purpose why they did what they did mostly and he doesn't really have a choice you could argue well he has a choice now he could leave it all behind mm-hmm. and or he could continue the witches from scratch he he doesn't have a choice mm. he's he is a witcher genetically emotionally spiritually he is a witcher and now he's got this terrible burden to single-handedly bring up the mm-hmm. last few children because all the mutagens are gone, all the chemicals mm-hmm. are gone. So they almost immediately become a dying race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's a that's a level of tragedy that I don't think many other shows have really got to that level of well-written, well-earned, just heartbreaking tragic tragic ending <laughs> that really that mm. the film finishes on speaking of tragedy what do you guys make of uh kitsu uh the mm. um the monsterized elf uh who serves as sort of the secondary antagonist um mm. in the mid-film because we got that um that moment where we just see her weeping over the the corpse of the basilisk and i think that just um it adds that element of empathy to the to the mm-hmm. monsters as well. I think that that theme runs through pretty much every character uh, pretty well. I, I might be on the minority on this one, but as you said, Andrew, there's a lot of spinning plates on the go yes. in this mm. show. I would say this is the one spinning plate that wobbled a lot for me. It it felt really pushed in, and and it's nice to have a villain that's got their own backstory. They've got their own feelings you know they're not just this cardboard cutout mm-hmm. of i'm a villain for her villain's sake that's mm. great um but i also felt like you know we 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 didn't have enough of their backstory to really know why we should feel sorry for them oh they didn't choose their lifestyle mm. okay but how did they get here were they captured were they not was it their own choice did they make decisions that they regret are they just an animal in this situation that was just tortured and mm-hmm. experimented on or not. There's so many unknowns that I personally found it a little hard to get too emotionally involved with them when I already had a lot of emotional involvement in yeah. most of the other characters at this point. But yeah. what's everyone else's thought? Caleb, am I, am I on the minority here or did, did you, did you think they did it well? I, 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 I feel similarly. I, I feel like um, it is it is a it is a short film. Maybe not short for for animated, but quite a few characters, quite a lot going on thematically. And um, maybe Phil Phil Evandro, who ties into Kitsu's plot directly. Phil Evandro, the the elf character yeah. from mm-hmm. the other Witcher stories, and who's very tied into Geralt over the years, feels the most like a fan cameo here, and yet is a is 
is used pretty centrally in Kitsu's plot. And, and for sort of communicating the entirety of the elven plight, we get through Phil Evangel. And I think he has some very effective lines and moments with uh, with um, Vesemir about that. And then, you know, with his decision to save the, the child hybrid uh, that Kitsu is is the, the one survivor out of these. And it is maybe a bit much with the, the, the degree to which Kitsu is there to give us just this, this horror and this mass of bodies. And here are the results of what's been done to, to elves, elves and monsters. It's all done very quickly, uh, but I do think, I think the story gains from things summit and it is maybe just something that I would have liked to have seen had room to breathe. If this were maybe, you know, yeah. the, the six episode mini mini series version of, of this movie. Yeah, I, I can see that, and I, I don't know. I just sort of like it as a grace note there in the in the margins. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I yeah. I always want to resist saying anything should be a, a mini series because I think oh, fair fair because <laughs> <laughs> I think it's yeah. it's it's the being you know the twenty first century being what it is. I think it's too easy to sort of sweep the benefits of a feature film under the rug. But yeah, Absolutely. I think yeah. I think the pacing can sort of get away from it at times, but. No, on the whole, like I'm glad this exists. Uh, in, as tie-in anime movies go, I vastly prefer this to something like Altered Carbon Resleeved, which was, um, mm. yeah, as those things go, like it <laughs> didn't really work for me. But um, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad this is out there in the world, and I, I think The Witcher lends itself to it. I think you do have to come to a movie like this with yeah, you have to have a sort of philosophical attitude in mind. Almost, a movie can be something supplement supplemental as opposed mm. to uh, self-contained and self-you know-justifying. Mm. You come to something like this because you want to compare and contrast it to other interpretations of the Witcher universe and different from different creators and in different mediums. But as one of those entries in the sort of larger cluster of Witcher stuff. I feel like it, it holds its own really well. Yeah. I, I would just say that I, assuming that the Witcher Netflix show goes on for more seasons, you know, I, I would say the second season was significantly better than the first season. Hmm. If nothing else, because if they got rid of that just ridiculous narrative structure that they tried in the first season, which I <laughs> deeply upset about because quite a number of people I spoke to who I wanted them to get into The Witcher because I thought they would like it was singularly put off because of this weird jumping back between yeah Andrew perfect example I really think you'd love The Witcher franchise I'm really heartbroken that that stupid narrative structure in the first season was enough to put you and many other people off it I, I, I'm, I'm gonna get around to season two don't worry I just, it was annoying, but I, anyway, the point of the, the rant, um, <laughs> I do wonder if this um, supplemental film would have benefited with coming out a little later in mm. considering that Vesemir was only introduced into the second season and he doesn't play a pivotal role in the second season. He's involved, you get some background, some interesting story, but he's not that big of a deal in the second season. And, and, and I hope that in a third mm. season, he'll play a lot bigger part and, and you know, show his backstory, his, his own character development as a, a, a very key instrumental secondary character in the, the Netflix series. And then I think mm. a film like this would have fitted in 
nicely when people are more established with his character. I just wonder if this potentially might have been a little soon to bring out so much backstory to him, mm. considering he's not really that big. Well, on the on the other hand, do you think that it really enhances his his season two arc, which is largely about his what he is willing to do for the chance to restart the Witcher Order, for the chance to make new Witchers and the sacrifices he's willing to make, what the Witchers mean and whether they should continue? Do, uh, do, I wonder if that would have, maybe maybe it would feel toss off mm. in some ways if a person didn't know what happened at Kaer Morhen, if they didn't either, either hadn't read the stories, played the game or seen the, the nightmare of, of the wolf. I would be curious to, uh, to know whether then he just feels fully like, you know, like a side character in, yeah. uh, in Witcher season two. I, I do think there is some resonance there for for him i mean and also there's the fan element where i was just excited to see vesemir appear in person in in yeah, season sure. two yeah. and, and to say oh yeah yeah this is just immediately be reminded this is one of my favorite characters that i already know and like a lot that sort of thing yeah no no that's a fair point that is a fair point then i guess it sort of fleshes out his character yeah more. I, I completely get that same feeling from you know things that i'm closer to where you know you're just watching uh, an adaptation of something and a character you know and love and you know you love just walks onto stage and it's just one mm-hmm. of those fans fans applaud um so you know that's not to be discounted i think that's a that's a valid re- reaction to have <laughs> mm. absolutely oh, so um thank you again caleb for uh, joining us um for all the the listeners out there please 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 go and give um his podcast a listen to um, we'll put a little description in uh, the Facebook page, a little tag and a link in there, so you can go Absolutely. and have a have a look. Yeah, and uh, I, I should it. clarify that um, you know we uh, just just in the interest of full disclosure, Caleb did say some very nice things about a story I wrote on one episode <laughs> of the Wattcast. And if, if you're wondering if this is a a, a quid pro quo sort of situation, <laughs> the answer is. 100% yes, absolutely. <laughs> I am desperate for affection and I will be, I will say nice things about anyone who uh, says nice things about me. So absolutely well, go and listen to the Wattcast. It's an excellent podcast. Well, that, that's yeah. a won- wonderful story, Dynasty of Lilith. And I, and I was really glad you, you shared that on the Discord. But yeah, it, it's been great talking with you both. Thanks so yeah, much for having absolutely. me on. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Caleb. Thanks for, thanks for bringing your perspective today. It's been great. Yeah. And All um right. And uh, yeah, until next time, everybody, I think I'll leave it to Daniel to uh, decide on whatever we're talking about next. Uh, uh, our next film is an unusual one. It's called Symbol. Symbol. Okay. Yep. It's a 2009 Japanese film. It's unusual. I read through the kind of the synopsis, watched a little quick breakdown thing on YouTube and went, this is something that Andrew and I need to have a look at. Oh, boy. It's weird. Yeah, keep those curveballs coming. Wouldn't be two friends watch without them. Exactly. All right, until then, speak to you later. Have a good week, everybody.